in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to talk today about the difference between borrowed and bought. The difference between borrowed and bought. There's a law of borrowing. And as sure as I'm standing here today, I've borrowed some things that I did not return. Um, in fact, some years ago, my wife and I went over to Karen Frost's house. And she began to share some of her CD collection. And I took a few CDs. And she came back and she said, where are those CDs? I said, I have no clue. Don't know where they went. And I'm sorry, Sister Karen. I didn't even go buy them to replace them. See, that's the law of borrowing. <laughs> that's the law of borrowing. If you borrow something, you take it back either in great condition or you re return something at least the same thing that you took, right? I've never understood when somebody borrows a cup of sugar. You can never take that cup of sugar back. You can take sugar back, but you can't take that same cup of sugar back. So it's not quite like borrowing, but... I've heard some crazy stories. Now, Brother Jeremy and Brother CJ have a pretty crazy story about a lawnmower. And that lawnmower wasn't returned. And the person didn't return a lawnmower to them. They had to go buy another lawnmower. I mean, you, you take a rake or a CD or a crock pot or a lawnmower, and you're supposed to go back with that to that person and say, here's your rake, your CD, your lawnmower, your crock pot. But see, sometimes we, we fail in this, and that is against the law of borrowing. If you borrow something, you return that item. If you don't return it, and there is some misuse or a misplacement of that, you still have to replace that item. And against that backdrop, I want to talk to you about the difference between borrowed and bought. I was reading in Scripture, and some months ago, this was probably before, well, I know it was before Easter this year, and I did a word shot on the borrowed tomb, and I read about how Jesus borrowed a tomb. And I thought, this is really interesting because normally you don't borrow something like that. But I began to delve a little bit deeper into Scripture, and, and I saw that there were three things that Jesus borrowed the week of his death. And because I read about the first item first, or the last item first, it... Uh, caused me to do some more digging and when I began to dig in this I realized hold on just a second I've got a very serious problem going on with my tablet there we go now I know why they've got these little things here to adjust things for you but I found that there was three things that Jesus borrowed that week it wasn't just a tomb but the Bible tells us that in Mark chapter 11, verses 2 through 3, that he sent to two disciples, and he said, you're going to find a colt there, and you're going to untie that colt, and you're going to bring him to me, and I'm going to ride on this colt. And, and he, this was a, a colt of a donkey. Now, a lot of people do not understand the significance of that, but it was a fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt of the foal of an ass. And so they no doubt looked and thought, if my king was going to show up, he's not going to show up on a donkey. Surely he's going to show up on a great white stallion. He's going to show himself to be more than just somebody that's sitting on a lowly donkey. But that's how Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And we see that this is the first thing, the week of his death, that he chose to borrow. Because it's interesting that, that a man of Jesus' stature, obviously being God in flesh, but he had no ties to a world. And so there was no worldly possessions. And he had to go borrow something to get to a certain place. That was the significance of it. He didn't have any worldly possessions. And so he had to borrow a donkey. The second thing he borrowed was a room in Mark chapter 14, verses 13 through 16. And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him, and whosoever or wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And so I began to look about the history of the upper room. It doesn't denote much when it talks about an upper room or, or upstairs of a certain place. And you would think that maybe it was a house or something of this nature. But in digging into a little bit of history and digging into the word of God, I began to understand that they called this the cynical. It was the upper room where the Holy Ghost was poured out. It was the upper room where the last supper was given. It very well could have been the upper room where Jesus showed himself to Thomas and Thomas said, my Lord and my God, because he saw the, the nail prints and he saw the, the side that was driven with the the um, staff or whatever they used to, to do that. And so I began to understand that there was just a borrowed room that Jesus found. Why? Because he was not of this world and he did not have any possessions of his own. He had to use transportation of somebody else's. He had to use a room that he did not own because he owned nothing in this world. Just borrowed a borrowed donkey and a borrowed room. Thirdly, Jesus borrowed a tomb, a grave. Matthew chapter 27, verses 56 or 57 through 60, where the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered, and when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth laid it in his own new tomb which he had hewn out in the rock and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed this one really boggles the the human mind i can't borrow a tomb can't borrow a grave brother jeremy if i came to you tomorrow and said i'd like to know if you have got a plot well yes i do oh i'd like to borrow that when i die i'm older than you so can I borrow that? And he's going to look at me and say, uh, 
Well, if I go the way of the grave, I'm going to be in trouble because there will already be somebody in that grave. So our human mind, I'm sure there had to be some kind of process that, that Joseph of Arimathea went through. I don't know if it was just great faith to believe that he said he would rise again, so I've got one, you can use it. Or if he was just so thankful that he knew a God that he said, you know what, I'll find another one and his body can lay there. But the Bible says that he borrowed a tomb. A tomb is a place that a dead body would stay and decay. A tomb was not something you used for a short period of time if you were just a common man, it was a final resting place for a body that would never see the light of day again. But can I tell you that Jesus was no ordinary man. When he asked for the tomb of somebody, he, he wasn't asking for a tomb that would be used for forever and ever. He was asking for just a few days, if you'll allow me to use the tomb. I promise you, you'll still be able to use that tomb. When I walk out of there, the grave clothes will be laid to the side and there, nothing will be disturbed. I can borrow the tomb because I am not the ordinary man. The resurrection is not just a good story. Neither is the birth of Jesus Christ. Everything was done for a purpose. The birth of Jesus Christ allowed for the life and death of Jesus Christ. Even when he began to teach and to talk to his disciples, I don't see him talking about uh, uh, being around anything else and being enshrined in a tomb. Never once do I see in, recorded in scripture that they're going to lay me in a tomb and I'm going to be laying there and you can come by and, and knock on the door and talk to me for a little bit. You can remember the good times and, and I'll be laying there and everything. He never talked about that. He did talk about his death and he did talk about a resurrection that they quite did not quite understand. But there was a purpose that always there was a purpose, and his purpose was always his church. Jesus needed a body, and he needed a tomb for only a short period of time. The body to become the ultimate sacrifice that would be given for mankind. A sacrifice without spot. A sacrifice without blemish. He was God in flesh, reconciling the world unto himself. He never meant for that body and that tomb to be remembered like he quite remember, wanted the church to be remembered. I just had a, a, an interesting conversation with Brother Frank Cabrera about this passage of Scripture. God in flesh reconciling the world unto himself. And we begin to talk about how in this world, how, is, how are people reconciled to God now? He doesn't have a fleshly body. When he walked this earth, he was reconciling people unto himself. Now we are the body of Christ. How do people come and become reconciled? They come because they come to the body of Christ, which is the church. And they find an old-fashioned altar somewhere, and they pray through to the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And they go down in the watery grave. And God is using his church, his body, to reconcile people unto himself. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation he borrowed the tomb because he was only in need of it for three days until he was resurrected his resurrection and ascension the bible tells us that 120 was assembled in the upper room yet again they went back to the room where they had had the last supper they went back to the place where where 
where Thomas looked at him and there was a revelation that came to him. He called him my Lord and my God. He understood this is God himself standing before me. They went back to that place waiting for the promise of the Father, waiting for the promise of the Holy Ghost that would come and dwell in him. He bought his church on Calvary. He bought his church on Calvary with his own blood. So they went to a borrowed room once again and sat in that room. But what happened on the day of Pentecost was not a borrowed experience. That was not something that God said, you know what, I'm going to give my, my spirit and I'm going to give you an experience for just a little bit of time. This was not something that he was going to ask for a return on. He wasn't going to come and say, okay, I'm going to give this to you for just a little bit of time, but you're going to have to give that back to me after a little bit, and so you're still going to be lost in sin. This was not a borrowed experience. This was something that he bought and paid for. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you, but you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord bought you, brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen for the, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the First Testament was dedicated without blood. So, in the Old Testament, God gives a testament. This is a last will and testament. You know what another way of saying the last will and testament is? A little comedy for you this morning. A dead giveaway. But God gave the first testament. In the New Testament, here comes Jesus. God in flesh. People don't understand some people are looking at him and he begins to change the testament. In my finite mind, I can even understand that the testator has to be the one to change the testament. So if you don't believe that Jesus Christ, who was the son of God, was also God in flesh and that he was the one that gave the testament in the beginning, this ought to tell you once and for all 
God himself had to be the one to change the testament. When Jesus stepped forward and said, I'm going to change that testament now, he was God in flesh. He began to talk to them. He said, I bought you with my own blood. Can I tell you that my son could look at all of my stuff and think, oh, this is great and wonderful. So when I die, I'm giving all my dad's stuff to somebody else. The son giving away the father's things doesn't work that way. When God himself came down and put flesh on and said, I'm going to ingrain myself in this world. I'm going to become what my creation is. Then I'm going to show them that I can change the testament, that I, there, there is a new testament. The Bible says that it cannot be, or neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. His plan was and will always be the infilling of his people with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That's what he came to do. His plan was always to have a people, a people set apart. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Can I tell you that this place is filled with people that were not a people? This place is filled with people that had a lot of problems. And, and when they came to the house of God, they were not children of God. They were just lost in a world. Some people came in here with a lot of baggage and they had to lay it down on an altar somewhere. But the Bible says they were not a people, but now are a people because we are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. I've been raised in this, and I, I know at almost 49 years of age that there is a, there's something to being a possession of God, but I always seem to shy away from saying we're possessed by God. Never forget a story. I was about six or seven years of age. And this is the story that was circulating with all the kids, Sister Nola. Somebody had demons. They were possessed in the, in the church in Roseburg. And the story was told that they saw a shadow go along the back wall and the door opened by itself and shut. I don't know if that's true. I wasn't there. Man, you talk about scare the living daylights out of somebody six or seven years old and all I could think of was when you think of possession you think of demon possession and then it just gives the wrong kind of connotation to it and so I wanted so badly to say we are his possession and I think we are but I got my new premier study bible and I'm, I'm looking of course I went to the book of John because our great pastor put the study aids in that Bible and when I read it I can hear his voice very clearly I just the phraseology and everything that's brother Bradford and I hear I hear his voice speaking to me as I'm reading I'm I'm enjoying my Bible and I go to this passage of scripture in first Peter chapter 2 and the phrase of peculiar people was taken from a Greek phrase that literally meant, you guys ready for this? A people of his possession. I about came out of my chair. Literally, I'm, I'm, I'm preparing this message, I just about came out of my chair. I was just excited. 
We are a people of the name of Jesus. We take on his name in baptism. He abides in us by way of the Holy Ghost that was given when we speak in another language. We were bought with a price. We are not a borrowed people. This is not a borrowed experience. He, he had to borrow some things in life, but when it came to a people, he said, I'm going to possess those people. They're going to be a treasure to me. They're going to be something that means something to me. They're going to be a people of value. And so verse 10 denotes a contrast between a people having, this is crazy. The, the, the scripture says in times past we're not a people, but are now the people of God. This denotes a contrast between a people having valuable identity as the people of God and one of having no valuable identity at all. Again, I almost shouted when I read this because I understand that God's word can bring so much to the surface for clarity in our own minds to understand I am valued in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter my past. It doesn't matter the things that have happened in my life. I'm still a valuable part of the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Let's give him a hand clap of praise to this morning. We come downtrodden. Broken. Psychological issues. Some of us completely mentally wiped out. Addicted. And we say, how in the world can God ever do anything with me, Brother Chris? How can he do anything with me? Listen to this. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Thank God. I'm one of the ugly ones. Thank God he still loves the ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses was a stuttering criminal. Samson was promiscuous. Gideon was doubtful. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah was depressed. David had an affair and committed murder. Elijah was mentally unbalanced and suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. When God called Jonah, he ran away. Naomi was an old widow. Job went bankrupt. Peter betrayed Jesus. The disciples fell asleep. Martha was a worrier. The Samaritan woman was a multiple divorcee. Zacchaeus was greedy. Paul was ingrained in another religion. Timothy was too young and had ulcers and Lazarus was dead. And I'm concerned about who I am. You pretty much can, any problem that you have, you can go right to that and say, I, if God could use any of those people, he could still use me. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for people that'll say, pick me, pick me. I'll go do whatever you want me to do. He's not asking that you become perfect. He's asking that you try to find. When the Bible talks about perfection, it's talking about maturity. Can you become more mature in your walk with God? Yes, I believe we all can. He's not looking for somebody that has no bumps or bruises or scrapes. Because when you look among us, that's what you're going to find is bruises and bumps and scrapes. Because we're just imperfect people. But he didn't say that. He said, I will pick those. I will pick those people that were not a people and I will make them a people people of the name of Jesus Christ. 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Can I tell you, you're not your own today. Why? Because ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I don't have to be concerned about what yesterday held for me. I don't have to be concerned with the mistakes that I made last year and yesterday, Brother Kaufman. I, you don't have to be concerned about where God brought you from as much as you look back and say, I know I came a mighty long way. There's an old song that Brother Condren used to sing that says, when I look back down the road, it's not, I don't want to glorify everything that took place down the road. I just want to know how far I've come. And I look ahead and say, I've still got a long way to go, but I'm a people now. I'm a person of God now. I'm not what I used to be. I'm not where I need to be, but I thank God I'm not where I used to be. So you can ask today, what is the quiddity of the lesson today? If Brother Bradford chooses to listen, he's going to like that word, I think. Liquidity or the upshot of the lesson today? How do I become his people? He so eloquently taught on the gospel. And too many times he said it. We, we want to tell somebody the gospel, and so we tell them, you have to repent and be baptized in Jesus' name and get the infilling of the Holy Ghost. That's not the gospel. That's the new birth experience. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My application of those three things our repentance of water baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. That is what the new birth experience is. So you ask, what is the upshot of the lesson today? How do I become a people of his possession? How do I become a people who was not a people? I become that by coming to an altar and repenting of all of my sins, as Acts 2.38 says, and being buried with him in baptism, as Galatians 3.27 says. And there's a, a resurrection when I rise to walk in newness of life. And there is a infilling of the Holy Ghost. That's how I become a people. That's how I become his people. That's how I become the church that he has chose to put in this place to reach out to those that, are, that have no idea what this gospel is. They have no idea what happens in a church house. It's amazing to me that Brother Philip that has been coming here, working in a place, been filled with the Holy Ghost since he was a child, and somebody walks in and begins to talk to him, and he never understood where this came from. He'd been to many churches and never set foot in an apostolic church. We've got a lot of work to do if somebody can have the Holy Ghost for 10, 12 years of their life and not know where to go to get it the only way that we're ever going to share that is we've got to become his people we've got to understand that this experience that I have is not only for me but it's for other people out there that are searching for that and so I don't want to just have to be a small part of what he is offering in the kingdom of God but I want to be everything he has called me to be I want I know there's going to be times that it's going to be hard I know that there are going to be times that I'm going to find it very hard to draw nigh unto God Sometimes we find it very hard to, to hit our knees in the morning. I have made an altar in my vehicle more times than not on my way to work. I lived in a very small house for most of my, well, 15 years of my 27 years of marriage. There was no place to find on my own 
Closets would not hold me, people. Those closets barely fit our clothes. And when I, we left the, the, the house just a few years ago, God blessed us with a beautiful home. And when I moved all of my wife and my, my own clothes out of that closet, I walked into a walk-in closet that's about this long from here to this corner, almost, maybe about right here. And it's jam-packed full of clothing. I'm like, how did all that stuff, it was like a magic room that just grew. It looked like it was about this big, size of this, the top of this. There was no closet. There was no room that somebody wasn't in. It was a two-bedroom house that we, we took a little room off the, the back where the laundry room was, and we built the laundry room in the back and put my son in there, had a fold-down bed. When he folded it out, it covered the whole room almost. He had to fold it back up to get ready. So I found myself in my vehicle, and I'll never forget one day. I was having, struggling with some things, and it seemed like it had been hard to get a hold of God. I'm like, well, I don't need a fasting from your presence, God, seriously. I mean, you got to come down. And I'm driving down the road in my vehicle. And I'm talking to God, and I wasn't talking eloquently at all. I'm like, you really, God, this is just really messed up, okay? You know I'm human. You know my problems, and I'm, I'm frustrated at this point. And I stopped talking, and I literally had my hands on the steering wheel. I'm not joking. That's exactly what I did. And tears began to stream. And I realized at that moment that God was saying, I was waiting for you to be frustrated enough just to do whatever. I'm, I've been waiting right here. You just don't call on me very often right now. You're having some issues. And so sometimes I go through those tough times. Sometimes you go through those tough times. I had a breakthrough that day because I dared to step out a little bit. I happened to look over next to me and this guy is in a car. The light had turned green and he's going like this. I don't know if he heard me. But at that moment I could care less because I realized when I screamed out and I began to feel what I felt. I was no longer not a people. I became a people right at that moment. Something happened in the spirit because I chose to reach out to a God that says, I am faithful to those that reach out to me. It may be hard at times, but I need to draw nigh unto him. And when he calls me to higher heights and deeper depths, I need to respond. I need to respond with, Lord, lead me. I will follow as the musicians come, I can't help but think of a song that my dad used to sing when I was just a young boy. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me, oh Savior, and know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be any wicked way in me. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So what's the upshot? 
the upshot is if I want to become his people, if I want to go to higher heights and deeper depths in him, in him, there's got to be more than just a Sunday morning drive to a church house and sit and experience the praise and worship. Shake hands with a few people. Good to see you, Brother Mickey. And go home. And I just realized that I should have taken Brother Bradford's spot and sung a hymn this morning because I missed it this morning. I love coming to the coffee shop on Sunday morning. But if I'm coming because there's a coffee shop, then my head's not in the right place. There's got to be a deeper relationship with God than what some of us have had for us to go higher, for us to go deeper. He didn't want to borrow a people. He was looking for something that was lasting. And he said, you know what, I'm going to go to Calvary and I'm going to offer myself blameless, spotless, and my blood will flow and it will be given to many for salvation because I want a church, I want a bride. As we stand this morning, he didn't want to borrow a people, but he wanted to have a church, a people that would share this wonderful gospel. A people that would look down the street from their house and see somebody. I remember looking across the street and a lady, Penelope, had a boy that was about the same age as Drew. And he came out one day and my son went over there and said, you want to play basketball? Yeah, and they played basketball. And I remember him coming to Sunday school with him. That's why we were put in the neighborhoods we're put in. We're not put in a neighborhood to say, we've got status now. We're, we're in a great place now. God has given us blessings, and so now we're, we're one of the ones that walk into our house proud because we live in a nice home. We're put in that neighborhood because we've got a gospel to share to them. And if we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, it, it, it has to become, there's got to be a responsibility on the church, folks. I'm amazed at the story of Jesus at the Jacob's well. The disciples left to get food and they came back. And I'm convinced that the people, that the disciples passed by that woman that was at the well and they knew who she was. If they didn't know firsthand, somebody told them that woman there, she's been married a number of times and she's living with a guy that's not her husband. She doesn't have a good reputation at all. Because the Bible tells us when the disciples came back, they were astonished that he talked with the woman. I'm thankful for repentance. I'm thankful for water baptism in Jesus' name. I'm thankful for the infilling of the Holy Ghost, but it's got to be more than just a thankfulness for all those things because it brought me out of a world of sin. But it's got to go deeper and higher to where I look around me and say, who hasn't? found repentance who hasn't who are not a people brother Kaufman I'm emotional every time I think of your story because you were born as part of his people and there were moments when you walked away and I don't want to glorify that at all 
But to see where you are today and see the day that you came back and you walked up to an old-fashioned altar and you become part of the ministry of this church because God said, I'm not done yet. The beautiful thing about the prodigal is he didn't lose his sonship because he walked away. The beautiful thing was is that when he looked back, the father was still standing there saying, is he looking this direction? Bible says that he ran to meet him. There was no remembrance of the the nastiness that he got himself into. He's looking at his son and he said, I want to restore you. And there's got to be something in us today that we understand this experience that we have is not just for me. But I want other people around me to be a part of the people of God. I want other people to be around me that knows what it's like to come to an old-fashioned altar and just lay your burdens down. Sometimes even people that are raised in church have so many things bogging them down. And they, they are afraid to come down because there's a, the, some kind of negative connotation given to somebody going down to an altar and beginning to cry. One of the greatest gifts ever given to man is the ability to wake up every morning and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't feel like I'm the person that I need to be. There should never be a, a negative connotation to anybody, whether you were raised in the house of God, been here for 60 years. I love to look back and see our elders with their hands up and tears streaming down their face because I know a lot of times that's just gratitude for what God has done in their life. altars are open I'm going to tell you something if you were not a part of the people at one point and you know what it's like to be a part of the people of God there ought to be tears streaming down your face and gratitude saying God I'm so grateful that somebody gave me the gospel I'm grateful that you went to a cross and gave yourself I'm grateful that there was a time in my life that when I had nothing somebody said I've got something to share with you As they begin to sing this morning, these altars are open for everybody. Jesus, we love. Love. Destined to 